1: Hello everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. The other day I was recording a podcast on the great commanders of history, and my brilliant expert on that, the uh, covert American military officer, who's known as Angry Staff Officer on Twitter, but I can assure you he's a very brilliant historian, he was not a fan of Alexander the Great, and I didn't think I was either, so I decided to go and do a full podcast on Alexander, check whether I have underestimated, check whether I'm being harsh on a man widely regarded as one of the greatest military leaders of all time. And I knew just the mind to go to. Tristan Hughes, the Tristorian. History hits in-house, Alexander the Great Specialist. He's got his own smash hit podcast. Millions of people are listening to The Ancients. He's just written a book about Alexander the Great's successors, and he's a font of knowledge for all things Macedonian and Age of Alexander. And we just went for it. We just rampaged straight through Alexander's early life, his remarkable apprenticeship, his tutoring at the hands of Aristotle, his slightly dodgy ascension to the throne of Macedon, his bloody housekeeping and then his invasion of the Persian Empire, Asia Minor, the Levant, North Africa, and points further east, until eventually he stood with his army on the banks of a river deep into what is now India. It is an extraordinary tale. He died at age just 32 in Babylon, his new capital city of a vast empire, but one that wouldn't really outlive him. This is everything you need to know about Alexander the Great. Enjoy.
0: T minus ten. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And
1: liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Tristan Hughes, good to have you on the podcast, buddy. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, the Tristan engine is firing all cylinders. Award-nominated, massive million-listener podcast. It's awesome, buddy. And I'm going to ask you about your favourite subject, which is Alexander the Great. That's what you came to us wanting to talk about in History Hit, and it's what you've been able to do. So I'm very glad that you've been able to share your passion for Alexander and his successes with the world.
0: Well, I must admit, it is a bit daunting, because Alexander the Great, he is such a massive topic. It's almost doing an interview on the Roman Empire because there is so much of this figure that you could talk about and I think there are people who have dedicated their academic lives to studying the life of Alexander the Great or even just parts of his story. So it would be nice to do an overview but of course we can delve into the detail of particular parts too.
1: Well, and if people want more detail, the Ancients podcast regularly deals with bits of Alexander's life and indeed death and legacy. So uh, please go and uh, listen to that sibling podcast here, Dan Snow's History. Um, let's get into it. It's nice and simple. When was he born?
0: <laughs> okay, so Alexander the Great is born in around July, in July 356 BC. So this is, you know, some 50 years after the Peloponnesian War written about by Thucydides and Athens versus Sparta. Right.
1: And kind of 150-ish after your battles of Marathon, Salamis, Thermopylae, that sort of thing?
0: Yeah, exactly. Just under 150 years since then. But of course, you've still got the Persian Empire to the east. It's still the superpower of the age. And Alexander, he is born in northern Greece to this kingdom, which is on the edge of the Greek world at that time, the kingdom of Macedon.
1: And You mentioned the Persia is still a big geostrategic fact. So that's sitting there. Frankly, not that fast. It was defeated in the Greco-Persian Wars of the 5th century BC, your battles of Plataea and Salamis and stuff. So they're doing okay. What's going on in Greece? Sparta won the Peloponnesian War. Is Sparta's hegemony still still in place? Well, no. It's been interesting in Greece over since, well,
0: since Sparta had won the Peloponnesian War. I mean, you have seen the rise of Thebes at that time. Of course, you've got battles such as Lutra and Mantinea. And so that Spartan hegemony has well and truly fallen.
1: We should do another podcast one day on how Thebes beat the Spartans. Because everyone goes on about the Spartans. We forget that this city of Thebes ended up bringing to an end that period of Spartan dominance. It's crazy stuff.
0: It's crazy. And also kind of the short-lived dominance of Thebes, especially when you do get to the start of Alexander's reign, some 20 years after he's born, when actually the city-state of Thebes is completely levelled by Alexander the Great. So Thebes enjoys this brief time right in the spotlight in the early 4th century BC, but then Alexander comes along and completely levels it.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk about the teenage Alexander. So that's when he's born. His dad... I mean, arguably, he owes so much to his dad, who even had Alexander not existed, Philip would be one of the remarkable figures of ancient history, wouldn't he?
0: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I think whenever you're talking about Alexander the Great, and you can go down so many different angles when talking about this figure, you almost always have to start with his father, Philip II, because he is so influential on Alexander's career. I mean, Philip... He inherits the Macedonian kingdom in 359 BC, so three years before Alexander is born, and he inherits a kingdom in complete crisis. As mentioned, Macedon at that time is seen very much on the periphery of the Greek world in the central Mediterranean. The kingdom of Macedonia has just suffered a terrible defeat against the Illyrians, and the preceding king, Philip's brother, a man called Perdiccas, had died alongside thousands of his soldiers in this battle. But what Philip does over the course of his kingship, which is just over 20 years, he transforms Macedon from this backwater, from this kingdom in great crisis, into the dominant power in the central Mediterranean. Perhaps most famously he does this by reforming the army, the Macedonian army, by introducing the iconic infantry formation that is the macedonian phalanx re-equipping most of his infantry his soldiers with this roughly four to six meter long pike called the sarissa they fight together in tight packed formations called the phalanx alongside heavy-hitting companion cavalry that the macedonians were already famous for and with this nucleus of his new army he is able to subdue various enemies whether it's greek city-states further south whether it's the thessalians but also Thracians in modern day Bulgaria and Romania to the northeast, Paeonians in what is now present day Macedonia to the north, or Illyrians to the west. But he also uses other tactics like diplomacy. He has several marriages and there was a joke that kind of emerged that Philip took a new wife after every war he fought. He was polygamous and almost all of his marriages were diplomatic to further secure and solidify his kingdom 's borders, and so much so by the time that Alexander is in his late teens, he is philip 's main son, and he is in an, a growing kingdom that has now solidified itself as the dominant power in the central mediterranean
1: and, and um there are, there is a little bit of um, there is a little bit of gossip around alexander 's succession um, Philip of Macedon was killed at a party. Very strangely and bizarrely, the assassin was then immediately murdered by was it Alexander or some of his mates. So, talk me through the kind of the, the death of Philip and whether you have any suspicions.
0: Well, okay. So, the death of Philip. So, Philip is, seems to be in good health in three three six BC, and it's been pretty good for Philip up to that point. He has just defeated a couple of years earlier, like his last kind of great battle, the battle of Chironair against a combination of city-states such as Thebes, such as Athens, and then he's basically taking control of almost all of the city-states in Greece except for Sparta, which is interesting in its own right. But what follows that is that Philip takes another marriage, this Macedonian noblewoman called Cleopatra, and her uncle is the man called Attalus. And why this is interesting is because at that marriage ceremony, Attalus, wanting to promote his niece, Cleopatra, and her marriage to Philip basically raises a toast and praises Philip and say, may you have legitimate heirs with my oh. niece. Oh, now oh, oh, shots fired, lad. Shots fired because Alexander is also at that banquet. To make it clearer as to why this is such a, kind of an attack, Alexander's mother isn't a Macedonian. Angelina Jolie in the famous Alexander 2004 movie, she is a Molossian. She came from the region of Epirus which is now northwest Greece and southern Albania. But because she is not a Macedonian and she was the result of a diplomatic marriage of course there is an attack by Aslis on Alexander basically saying look my niece is going to give Philip legitimate Macedonian heirs you do not deserve to be the successor kind of thing. It was a very much an open attack at Alexander at this wedding feast. Alexander goes into a drunken rage. Philip supposedly takes out his sword. He's so angry with Alexander for his anger himself, for being so enraged at Atlas's statement. And it basically results in Alexander going into exile for a bit. He goes to the Illyrians in the northwest. His mother Olympias goes back to her homeland in Epirus in Molossia. So when you know that background, that there is this hostility there at court, and that Alexander and Philip, they're not on the best terms in these immediate years before Philip's assassination, then when Philip is assassinated, some have speculated, well, was Alexander involved in it? Probably not, because Alexander is reconciled with Philip just before his assassination. There is a thought as to whether Olympias, Alexander's mother, was involved in the assassination attempt, in the assassination of Philip. But once again, that's very difficult to prove too. The story with Philip's assassination is that his bodyguard, the man who killed him, had a personal grievance against Philip, and that Philip hadn't addressed a shame that he had suffered actually at that same wedding feast. And so he had just taken it on himself to murder Philip right in the open at this great ceremony at Agai. But whether Alexander was involved in the murder of Philip, I think is quite unlikely. However, that rumour does continue. But Alexander, straight away, he tries to pin the blame, not on himself, not on any other Macedonians, but says that the Persian king, Darius III, had paid Pausanias, this bodyguard, to assassinate Philip. So Alexander steers all blame away from himself. There is a suspicion that maybe Alexander was involved in the assassination, but I think it's unlikely.
1: But then when Philip dies, Alexander has to go around doing some pretty aggressive housekeeping, doesn't he?
0: He does. And it's absolutely brutal. Now, the Macedonian court, the Royal Macedonian court, is chaotic. And it has a history of political murders, particularly because of the practice of polygamy. So Philip takes several wives. He has several children. He has two sons, But he also has a nephew, the son of his deceased brother, the previous king. And so, partly as a result of that, you have these internal politics, these internal factions forming. And so, when Philip dies, there is straight away a struggle for the succession. Alexander seizes the moment, he is proclaimed king, he gets the support of some of the most important nobles in Macedon at that time. And to secure his control, He then removes any potential threats to his kingship. And that includes his cousin, the man called Amintas, who was also of royal stock. And there was also rumours that he was also planning his own attempt for the kingship. He also removes certain nobles who would try to triumph their own family lines and their own links to Philip II, most famously a man called Attalus, who Alexander describes in a later speech as being his greatest enemy of all. But there is a lot of murder following Philip's death, so that Alexander can secure himself as Philip's clear and true successor.
1: There's a lot of court, the sort of murder in-house, but then he, as we have mentioned at the beginning, he just destroys Thebes. He has a sort of lightning campaign to pacify his father's empire, doesn't he?
0: Yes. So he sorts out these internal troubles, first of all, and then, as you say, He uses the army that has already been created by Philip. It's also lightning fast because Philip has reformed the logistics system too. He marches, he fights against these Thracians and also a tribe called the Trebali near the Danube River. He solidifies that northern part of the empire recently conquered by Philip.
1: And let's remember how old he is. How old is he at this point?
0: When he assumes the throne, he is roughly 20 years old. He has just turned 20. So this is 336 BC. 20 years after he's born.
1: And we can't be sure. Is he, is he leading these campaigns himself? Is he he's relying on his dad's key lieutenants? What's going on here?
0: So to an extent, he is relying on key lieutenants in one particular case, in the case of one of Philip's most capable adjutants, which is a man called Parmenion. Parmenion has already crossed into Asia Minor, into Persian territory, and is almost with a Macedonian advance guard waiting for Alexander to arrive and to start his campaign against the Persian Empire, which he will do a couple of years later in 334 BC. However, during those first two years when he is consolidating his control over the Macedonian Empire in Europe, Alexander is leading these campaigns. So he is marching his army up to present-day Romania, up to the Danube River. He is fighting against these tribes in the north. He is then marching back. He is fighting others. He's fighting Illyrians in the west of Macedonia. And then when he hears a revolt at Thebes, the Greek city-state of Thebes further south, he has a lightning march down from western Macedonia. In the space of some 13, 14 days, he arrives outside the walls of Thebes. He lays siege to the city. It's not an easy siege, but he ultimately does storm and conquer Thebes. And to show that he's not to be messed with, that no other Greek city-state should consider revolt, that he is here and he means business he completely levels the Greek city-state of Thebes to the ground and leaves only one house standing. And that is the house of the poet Pindar. Because Alexander, although we remember him primarily as this warlord, as a man who's raised for war, this great commander of cavalry and infantry, and also siege machinery too, he was also a great lover of poetry. He's taught by Aristotle. There's a later story that he had a copy of the Iliad under his bed when he slept. And of course, alongside that, Pindar, he's this famous poet from the 5th century BC, which Alexander also has a huge admiration for. So in answer to your question, yes, he embarks on these various different campaigns straight away to the north of Macedon, to the west of Macedon and into Greece proper to secure the Macedonian control of these lands in the early years of his reign.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Aristotle, his tutor. I mean, that's one of the great kind of relationships of all time, isn't it? One of the one of the greatest thinkers in human history and one of the greatest military commanders. It's extraordinary that he was his his tutor. Um, so he's pacified Greece. He's shored up his father's Balkan Empire, Greek and Balkan Empire. What next?
0: So next, he turns his attention east. And there is a debate how much that his father, Philip II, had been preparing for a great campaign of conquest against the superpower, the Persian Empire. Because before that time, you had had Greek expeditions that had gone into the western extremities of the Persian Empire, which is present-day Anatolia and the Greek city-states of that west coast. But largely, those previous Greek campaigns had been campaigns of getting plunder and loot, and then they return back to the Greek mainland. But Alexander's next goal once he secured these lands to the west of the Aegean, is to take an army between thirty and forty thousand men, with his Macedonians right at the core, but also some very important allied troops too, and they cross the Dardanelles, the ancient Hellespont, and they invade the Persian Empire.
1: He can't have thought I am going to conquer the Persian Empire, can he?
0: Well, it's an interesting one. I said that these Persians, they don't know that Alexander the Great is going to be any different to these other Greek armies that have been ravaging the western part of the Persian Empire over the past 50 years or so. And it's interesting how much you have to look into the story of Alexander as to whether this idea that he always had an idea of conquering the mighty Persian Empire was right there at the beginning in 334 BC when he crosses into Anatolia, or whether... That is later fiction. I don't really say, no, you can say for sure. But what we get is that as he gets more and more success as he invades Asia Minor, that idea that he just wants to conquer the entirety and see how far he can go really develops. But also you need to remember, Alexander has been influenced by these stories of these great Homeric heroes, but also of demigods like Heracles. So I think there is a desire of Alexander to see how far he can go to see how many lands he can conquer, to see if he can best these heroic figures that he's learned of all through his early years. So I don't know how much Alexander, when he crosses, when he invades Persian territory, actually how much of his thoughts have been developed into him wanting to conquer the mighty Persian Empire, or if that comes later. What I can say is that later fictional stories, and I think they most likely are fictional emerge around his crossing of the Hellespont later, where, let's say, he throws a spear into the Persian-Asian territory, that side of the Hellespont, and he claims Asia as his spear won territory. You know, that very kind of iconic image saying, I'm now going to conquer it all. I think his ideas of wanting to conquer the whole of the Persian Empire will probably come later as he gets more confident as he gains these initial victories.
1: Right, Tristan, he's thrown a spear into Asia. What next? Tell me about his the opening moves of his campaign. He's 22 years old. He's marching into Asia. What's the first battle he has to fight?
0: So the first battle he has to fight doesn't happen very long after his army has landed in Asia Minor, and it occurs at a river called the River Granicus. And this battle is not against the Persian king Darius III. Darius is hundreds of miles to the east at this time, and he doesn't see Alexander as this great threat. As I mentioned, you've had these Greek armies venturing into Persian... Anatolia before. They've done some raiding, they've done some looting, and then they've ultimately gone back to the Greek mainland. So what happens is that the Persian governors in these Western provinces, we'll say governors because it's just more clear to understand what role they had, the Persians called them satraps. But they gather together and they mass all of their forces in Anatolia, largely local troops, but they also do have some elite cavalry from as far away as Afghanistan, and they gather these forces alongside a lot of Greek mercenaries too, and they try to stop Alexander at this small river. Alexander picks up the gauntlet. There's a story that Parmenion, one of his lead adjutants, tells him when they arrive at the river late in the day, right, our men are tired, let's sleep for tonight, and then let's fight the battle the next day. But Alexander says, no, we're fighting it now. And so the battle begins. It's largely a cavalry fight. Alexander first sending his scouts across the river, then Alexander himself follows up. We don't know what's really happening at the rest of the line, because as with our sources, they focus in on Alexander and what he's doing. He has a few dices with death. There's this famous story that two prominent Persians spot Alexander as he's fighting in the midst of the fray. Alexander is able to spear one straight away, but whilst he's preoccupied with that, the other Persian raises his sword. He's about to deal Alexander the death blow when one of Alexander's other senior subordinates, a man called Clytus the Black, steps in and cuts off the Persian governor's arm before he can land the killing blow. So Alexander survives a dice with death right at the start of his campaign.
1: It could have so easily been snuffed out his whole career. It's fascinating. Not unlike Napoleon at the Battle of Toulon, took a bayonet in the leg, I think it was. Could have been the end of him. So Alexander has won his first battle. You briefly touched on some of his father's innovations. Why would the Greeks prove to be so successful? Is it just that Alexander is a stone-cold genius, or is there a real technological tactical edge that the Greek heavy infantry and perhaps heavy cavalry as well have got at this point? I think there very much is a tactical edge. And it's Like Of course,
0: you had the Macedonian infantry and the Macedonian heavy cavalry that you've highlighted there, this hammer and anvil technique where the phalanx formations would hold the enemy in place, and then you'd have the heavy cavalry hitting from behind if that was possible. But I think sometimes that focus on Alexander's central Macedonian units, the heavy cavalry and the heavy infantry, takes our focus away from many other parts of his army that are revolutionary in many senses. For instance. Alexander the Great's siege machinery. Alexander doesn't just fight pitched battles. Again and again, he has to lay siege to formidable strongholds, and he has some fantastic engineers with him on campaign, such as a man called Diades. And they have stone throwing catapults, they have great siege engines, they have rams. The mundane ladders are even so important in him taking so many of these settlements. He has allied units like these elite light infantry, these javelin men from the upper Strymon River just north of Macedonia, the Agrianians. He has slingers, he has archers, he has light cavalry. It's a combination of all of these things that gives his army the edge, combined with a fantastic command structure. And why I mean fantastic is that Alexander is a very charismatic leader. He leads from the front and he gains this incredibly charismatic reputation. His aura is more than any others in the army. But to have that type of leadership style, that very daring leadership style, he has to have the complete trust and dependence on his subordinates, that they are going to see through their parts of the battle plan whilst Alexander is leading his companion cavalry or his elite foot guards and dealing the killer blow in a battle. And that is also the genius is because Alexander does have those figures. I love referring to them as mini-Alexanders because you see them really rise following Alexander's death. Figures like Perdiccas, like Craterus, like Ptolemy and so on. They emulate Alexander's charismatic style of leading from the front in these battles. They share in the risks of their men and they are completely dependable for Alexander. And their roles in the battles are almost as important as Alexander, So I think the keys to Alexander's successes, alongside the outrageous luck he had, was the skill of his army, the Macedonian units, but also the allied units he has, was the technology that he had with these siege machines, but also the great quality of the commanders that he had at his disposal too. Those all play super important parts as to why Alexander's army are able to carve their way through this ailing superpower that was the Persian Empire. you
1: listen listening to Dan Snow's History, talking to Tristan Hughes about Alexander the Great. More coming up. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American history hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from travel channel. So he's won his first battle in very, very northwest Turkey today, quite near Troy, quite near the Gallipoli Peninsula, if people want to locate themselves. A year later, he's fighting a much more significant battle, Issus, and that is, again, sort of where Turkey meets Syria, you'd say on the Mediterranean, that kind of part of the world. So it's taken a year for him to sort of conquer what is now Turkey, Asia Minor, has it, and he's now moving south and the major Persian force is going to meet him there.
0: Yes, exactly right, Dan. You mentioned Troy there, which is quite interesting because Alexander does do a sightseeing visit to Troy. Of course he does, with his great love of the Iliads. And so Troy has very much become this kind of tourist site for the likes of Alexander and his companions. But anyway, yes, let's keep moving on. In that year or so, he has conquered large parts of Asia Minor. He's famously cut through the Gordian knot uh, with his sword according to one tradition, so therefore claiming that Asia was his territory and that he would go on to conquer Asia. And yes, Darius in the meantime has been gathering a large army at one of his capitals at Babylon because he's realised, okay, this Alexander figure, it's not going to be a case of he's just in The Persian Empire for a bit, then he goes back to Greece. This guy is coming east and he's coming fast. So Darius gathers this great army. They come to blows at the Battle of Issus. And the Battle of Issus is a very interesting one because they're placed either side of a river, the Pinarus River. And actually, the battle site is pretty narrow, it's pretty thin before you get to the mountains. So Darius has a larger army than Alexander's. And yet he can't use it to full advantage because the terrain isn't expansive enough for him to kind of use that to his best tactics. However, he still would have thought that he would have won that battle. But Alexander, once again, you see this initiative. He takes the advantage. He charges on the right across the river with his companion cavalry. His infantry fight in the centre against lots and lots of thousands of Greek mercenaries that were fighting for the Persians. This idea that the Persian Empire just had Asian units is fiction. There were lots of Greeks that were fighting against Alexander the Great in Persian service for money. It's a hard fought battle, particularly for the infantry in the centre and for Alexander's opposing wing on the left side near the sea, which is commanded by one of his chief adjutants, a man called Parmenion. But ultimately Alexander is able to cross the river to make a blow into the Persian army and he starts enveloping the Persian army. And Darius, despite having a numerical advantage, he is defeated and he is forced to flee eastwards quickly, so quickly that he leaves a lot of his baggage, he leaves his chariot, and he has to leave his family behind. And they all fall into Alexander's possession following his defeat at Issus. So Alexander has defeated Darius for the first time at the Battle of Issus.
1: So that kind of eastern coast of the Mediterranean, so your Israels, your Lebanons, Syria... Turkey. That, that's now pretty in Alexander's hands, although he has to go and conduct a, probably his toughest battle, isn't it? It's his, um, the Siege of Tyre, which is a settlement now on the, um, the coast of Israel. And I'm always struck, he fights this crazy siege against the people of Tyre. Why didn't Darius come and attack him while he was doing that? It strikes me that Alexander was quite vulnerable at that
0: point. <laughs> now, Darius is fleeing back to Babylon. He's there trying to gather his next massive army, with which to fight Alexander again. Tyre... You know, this great centre, mother city of the Phoenicians, as you say, it holds out against Alexander for months before Alexander does ultimately conquer it. Tyre, by the way, strategically, it's an island fortress and it ultimately results in Alexander, these great engineering projects, the creation of a mole out to nearly to the island, the putting of artillery on ships. Diades, the great engineer that I mentioned earlier, is so important. His machines are so important, Alexander's ultimate taking of Tyre, that he's later called the man who took Tyre. And then, I mean, from Phoenicia, from Tyre, once he's conquered those important naval cities, which of course is so important to Alexander destroying without really engaging the Persian fleets because the Phoenician ships, they were very important for the Persian Navy. So when Alexander conquers these places like Tyre, he is actually taking those Phoenician ships from Persian control, and they are now part of the Macedonian empire. So a win-win for Alexander. From there he also has a big siege of Gaza, a bit further south, he then conquers Gaza too, and then that whole eastern coastline of the Mediterranean, that really important eastern coastline is in his possession. And of course, the next step from him there is Egypt.
1: And Egypt, he seems to have a kind of um I would say midlife crisis, but he's far too young. He has a remarkable episode in Egypt, doesn't he? Egypt after its long and illustrious tradition of being self-ruling, was now a province of the Persian Empire. Alexander goes there and actually has goes on like a mad gap year and finds himself. I mean, he really does do a bit of a crazy one here, doesn't he?
0: I think the story of Alexander in Egypt, of all of the countries, of all of the parts of the Mediterranean and Near Eastern and Middle Eastern world that he conquers, I think his relationship with Egypt is perhaps the most fascinating of all. Because you get this story of him in Egypt during his life, But also, of course, that is ultimately where his body ends up following his death too. But you can go to Egypt today. You can go to places like Luxor, where ancient Egyptian city of Thebes, not to be confused with the Greek city of Thebes, where Alexander almost certainly never went to. And yet you go to the heart of one of these Egyptian temples and you're shown a depiction of a pharaoh on the wall right in the centre of this temple. And they tell you, that's Alexander the Great. It's not a Tutankhamun. It's not Ramses. That's a depiction of Alexander the Great as a pharaoh.
1: Well, I knew that, Tristan. You know how I know that? Because I've watched your excellent documentary when you go to Luxor and you ignore all the ancient Egyptian stuff that other people find fascinating and you are just there, focused like a laser beam on uh, the Alexandrian legacy there. So go and check it out on History at TV, everybody.
0: Absolutely. Great plug in there, Dan. Absolutely loving you for it. And even there's another one in the next temple nearby. There's a depiction of Alexander the Great's brother. Philip Aradaeus as a pharaoh too. But that's another story entirely. But it is very interesting how Alexander, although he doesn't spend very long in Egypt, he's very much, because of Egypt's long-lasting culture, its prestigious culture, he's almost integrated into it. I don't think he's crowned as pharaoh in a big ceremony that some believe. I don't think there's really enough time. But alongside that, he then goes and founds one of his greatest legacies, the city of Alexandria, which is still a city today on the Mediterranean coastline. And then he takes this weird, bizarre trip into the desert of present-day Libya to the oracle of Amon, the Libyan god Amon, who the Greeks aligned with their chief god Zeus. Now, Alexander goes there, and it's a bit difficult from the sources, but it seems that either when he arrived or when he consulted the oracle, he was greeted as the son of Zeus, and he received all the answers that he had been hoping for. Basically, that he had been proclaimed by these priests and by the oracle, as the actual son of Zeus. So he was the son of a god.
1: Those priests knew where the the largesse was going to come from, didn't they? Very wise. They knew where their bread was buttered. Um, So he he comes away from Egypt thinking he's now divine. And I imagine that didn't help his interpersonal relationships, particularly, as we will discover. Issus is the end of 333. 332, therefore, he's kind of on the coast and he's in Egypt. But 331... His mind's back in the game, isn't it? He heads to finish off the Persian Empire. Yes,
0: exactly. If you're looking for superlatives, then I think we could say that his next big clash against the Persians in 331 BC is his greatest victory. And this is the Battle of Galgamela. This is the great battle at the start of that 2004 epic movie, Alexander. And it's perhaps one of the best recreations on screen of an ancient battle from the sources that we have surviving. Darius, in the meantime, he's been gathering a huge army back in Babylon to fight Alexander once again. There are stories that he sent lessons to Alexander, basically offering Alexander the western portion of the Persian Empire, saying, you can keep that, just let me keep the rest east of the Euphrates River. But Alexander supposedly just replies, no, I'm after all of it, buddy, so I'm coming for you next. And that's what he does. And so they come to blows on this massive plain, in northern Iraq, near a town called or Albaia. And what follows is perhaps some of the greatest genius, military genius of Alexander. It's told again and again and again. Darius, at Issus, the battle, he'd kind of been constrained because of the narrow terrain. He's got a massive plane at Galgamela to play with. He's got chariots. He's got elephants. He's got some of the best elite heavy cavalry in Central Asia. And he's got thousands of infantry too. And despite Alexander being completely outnumbered, what he does in this battle is he is able to manoeuvre his army to the right, starts moving his army to the right. The Persians, they want to still envelop Alexander, so they respond. And then there's a cavalry fight that breaks out on the far right-hand side. More and more of these horsemen are sucked in. Darius sends the chariots forward into Alexander's army, but Alexander's army repels them with the phalanx. There's a story that the phalanx breaks ranks and these scythe chariots, these chariots had spikes on the side, they go through and they don't really cause any damage whatsoever and are then dealt with. They're also damaged by the javelin men who just shower javelins on these chariots. And what follows is a big, big clash. There's fighting on the left, there's fighting in the centre, there's fighting with Alexander and these horsemen on the right. And then partway through the battle, Alexander spots a gap that has been created in the enemy line and he gathers a part of his elite heavy shot cavalry, his companion cavalry. They form a wedge and they go straight for that gap in the Persian line and he is targeting Darius, the head of the snake. Alexander charges through Darius. One of our sources says he panics. There's very much this portrayal of Darius as the coward. But another of our sources says Darius tried to stay for as long as he could and he actually wanted to stay there but he was ultimately convinced that because he was the great king he did have to retreat because of this decisive act by Alexander with his shot cavalry. So Darius flees the field and what follows is a general rout of the Persian army when they see that their king has left the field. That being said there are still parts of the line which fight for very very long. Parmenion who's often overlooked, and he's always commanding that part of the line completely opposite where Alexander is. Parmenion's on the left wing. He is fighting loads and loads of Persians, more than his own number, but he still holds the line whilst Alexander is doing that decisive movement on the right. And although Parmenion gets a bit of stick, he was apparently calling for aid for Alexander a couple of times during the battle. But when Alexander ultimately does go to help Parmenion, He arrives too late because Parmenion and his troops have actually dealt with the danger already. So they're these very parts of the battle, but it results in Alexander gaining this overwhelming victory against Darius. His army completely leaves the field in tatters. And this is, I think it's fair to say, Alexander's greatest victory.
1: I mean, it's seen as one of the great victories of all time. And you know, I do love the fact that he identifies and destroys his enemy's centre of gravity. And that's the the one that still taught. Even though he's well outnumbered, he works out that if he can deliver enough troops on a very targeted attack on Darius's position, that he can send his enemy flying. It's an extraordinary story. Poor old Darius. feel a bit sorry for him. He has a miserable last few weeks of his life, doesn't he? He does. And it takes a
0: few months until that happens. I think it's 330 BC, uh, whilst Alexander's taking control of the rich centres of the Persian Empire, like Babylon, Susa,
1: Oh God, so he survives a year or two, does he?
0: Yeah, he does, because he flees east of the Zagros Mountains. Uh, He goes first to Ecbatana, one of these other capitals uh, in Media. And then when Alexander is pursuing, Darius is forced to flee further east, still hoping of raising a new army in the most eastern provinces, northeastern provinces of the Persian Empire. But then one of his subordinates, a man called Bessus, seeking terms with Alexander and a few other conspirators as well, but Bessus is the man who's always seen as the ringleader. They kill Darius and leave him on the roadside. Alexander comes a few days later. Some of the sources say that he actually sees Darius whilst Darius is still alive. That's unlikely. But he finds Darius's corpse, feels very sorry for Darius, makes sure that he has a royal burial fit for the king back in the Persian heartlands and is buried in the royal Persian tombs. And then Alexander, I mean, he's now the new real king of Asia, of the Persian empire. But he's now determined to get rid of Bessus because Bessus has been this kingslayer of an enemy in Darius that he ultimately respected. And so Alexander's campaigns don't finish there. He now decides that he wants to conquer the rest. He now decides that he wants to bring Bessus to justice and go as far as possible.
1: And at this point, what does as far as possible mean? Where does the Persian Empire end at this point in history?
0: So the Persian Empire at this time, it stretches as far, as you could say, like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, Afghanistan in the northeast, the Darya River, what was called the Jaxartes River. There was a settlement called Cyropolis, named after, of course, the King Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, founder of the Persian Empire. That was very much seen as a northeastern boundary. And when Alexander ultimately does get there, he founds one of his cities, fittingly called Alexandria Escate, Alexandria the furthest But then the Persian Empire also stretches south, across the Hindu Kush, into the Indus River Valley, so modern-day Pakistan. So those are still areas of the Persian Empire that Alexander was still to conquer, but those are the areas that he campaigns in, in the latter years of his life.
1: Okay, so he's on the way east, he's completing the conquest of this empire. We should say there's some criticism of him that he turns Persian, doesn't he? I mean, when he captures these great cities of Persia and he starts to... Acts, does or does he act more like a great Persian king than a Greek, or is this all just propaganda about how the sort of the rugged masculine Greeks are being corrupted by the like, softness of the East?
0: I mean, that masculine Greek softness of the East kind of thing, that's kind of you know the nature of the literary sources that we have surviving. But I think Alexander doesn't really have a choice there because Macedon, and actually the Greek mainland is now a very small part of his new empire, and he's now got all of these various noble families, prestigious families of these various Iranian heritage, you know, especially the Persian heartlands, who have their own proud history. You've already seen how Alexander has embraced Egyptian culture when he's in Egypt, and he very much embraces Persian culture when he gets to these heartlands of Persia. And of course, he's also bigged his ego up by now, thinking that he is the son of a god, the son of Zeus. And the most infamous case of this, and I say infamous because of how our sources portray it, is the practice called proskinesis, which is a Persian practice where someone prostrated themselves in front of the king and basically seeing the king as a god. When this was completely unacceptable to so many of the Greeks. But Alexander allows this practice for his Persian subjects. It's not for all of his Greeks to do, but he has to embrace these various parts of Persian culture if he is to maintain control of this large empire. But of course that does lead him to have issues with certain parts of his army, particularly later when the Macedonian infantry, let's say, who had been right at the center of so many of his victories, particularly early on his reign, They realise during the latter years of Alexander's campaigning that Alexander, he is looking at Asian units, at recruiting tens of thousands of new soldiers trained in the Macedonian manner, trained to form phalanxes, to basically be the successors to the Macedonians. And they get enraged by that too, because Alexander is not focused back on the West and Macedon as he had been in the past. So yes, I think Alexander has to embrace these various parts of Persian culture because he has to now deal with these various important Persian families and these Persian governors. Many Persian governors he allows to stay in their positions because they know the administration, because largely these ones have decided just to go over to Alexander rather than resist him. So I think it's a very difficult line for him to balance, but ultimately he doesn't really live long enough to really try and consolidate this new Asian, Greek, Empire.
1: So he's embraced his Persian subject, perhaps more than some might like. And he continues his conquest of all the Persian lands. Then he goes further, doesn't he? Uh, This is the bit that always confuses me. He crosses into what is now India and keeps going. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, he does. And even before that, when he's in Afghanistan and Uzbekistan, those years are ultimately the hardest of all of his campaigning. Uh, He has to face a revolt which lasts for years, this Sogdian revolt, right at the northeastern corner of the empire. And he's only ultimately able to kind of well, win might be too strong a word, but he's only able to pacify this revolt by marrying a noble princess, a noblewoman of one of these chief Sogdian families. And then he actually installs his new father in law, this Sogdian chief, as one of the key governors in that area of the world. And he's forced to leave a garrison of some 13, 14, 15,000 mercenaries to try and contain order on this northeastern frontier of his new empire. So those years after defeating Darius in those two great battles, after Darius's death, are the hardest of his campaigning career. And then, as you say, he heads south. He goes from Afghanistan, from ancient Bactria and ancient Sogdia, and he crosses the Hindu Kush into the Indus River Valley. Now, although officially these were parts of the Persian Empire, they're very much ruled by their own Indian rulers. You have, for instance, Taxiles, who rules from the capital of Taxila, who is friendly to Alexander once he crosses the Hindu Kush and faces all the issues that he has there. But of course, perhaps most famously of all, you have this final great battle, open-pitched battle, that Alexander faces against the enemy of Taxiles, and this is Porus, the king of the Paravas in the Punjab.
1: So he's in the Punjab, he fights this mighty battle, Is his army starting to get reluctant to keep going further east? What does Alexander want to do at this point?
0: Yes, his army very much is getting reluctant to go any further east. It's interesting because he defeats Porus at the Battle of Hydaspes River. And actually, I think he was always going to beat Porus because Porus's kingdom is very, very small, especially when you consider the resources that Alexander had at his disposal by this time. That's like 100,000 men including Persians as well. He'd integrated all these new units into his army as he'd progressed further, further east, horse archers too. But Porus and his Indian war elephants and his army had given a hell of a fight. And as the Macedonians are marching, well, the whole army are marching further east, but particularly his Macedonians, they're the most vocal. They're the ones who had served with him, you know, since the start. As they cross more rivers, they ultimately reach the Hyphasis River, which is today the Baas River, and they hear grumblings, they hear rumours that there are more Indian armies awaiting them further east, as far as the Gangetic Plain. And for these soldiers, they're like, this is enough. We can't keep going. We can't keep fighting these armies because, you know, sooner or later, we're going to come a cropper. And so what Alexander has at the bank of this river, western bank of the Hyphasis River, is he has a mutiny. The soldiers who'd been serving him for so long, who Alexander had convinced to go with him to the edges of the world and further. This is largely unexplored territory. This is unknown territory. They decide to make their stand. And Alexander, he has a great hissy fit, almost, like Achilles. He goes back into his tent and is really angry for a bit. But ultimately, he gives in. He listens to his subordinates like Craterus and Coenus, and he decides, okay, enough is enough. But what we're going to do is we're going to sail down the Indus River to the mouth of the Indus River, and then we'll march back along the coast and go back to Central Asia. And so they decide to go no further, but it's not the end of Alexander's campaigning in India because Alexander's almost just like, okay, but we're also going to do a bit more campaigning in the Indus River instead.
1: So he campaigns down, and he marches back along what is now southern Pakistan, southern Iran, gets back to the now center his empire in the old Persian capitals, Well, He fancied looking west next, didn't he? The Mediterranean Basin, Italy and beyond, didn't he?
0: Yes, I think so. Now, of course, people say, what about Arabia? And they're very much right, because in the months before Alexander ultimately dies, spoiler alert, in Babylon, uh, he has sent his Admiral Nearchus with a fleet to scout out the coastline of Arabia. And it would make sense to launch a campaign there, because Arabia, that coast, is so important in the trade between India and and the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. So he may well have been looking at doing a future campaign around Arabia, at least learning more about these trade cities that were on that peninsula. But ultimately I do think he would have looked back further west, especially the city-state of Athens, which has been becoming more and more troublesome over the years. It's rebuilding its army, it's rebuilding its fleet. The people in charge at Athens, people like Lycurgus and Hyperides, they are actively anti- Alexander. And there are people at Alexander's court telling him this, telling him that he needs to go and punish the Athenians, to lay siege to it with siege engines to stop them from potentially revolting. But yes, I think Alexander, having returned from the Far East and during that suffering a terrible disaster crossing the Gedrosian desert, a logistical nightmare where lots of his baggage train, lots of the people accompanying his army die. Alexander has no more intention of looking east. Arabia, maybe, but ultimately he's looking further west. You know, maybe to places such as Italy or Carthage in the future. But I think primarily he'd want to go back to Greece and he'd want to target Athens.
1: Cracky. Thoughts and prayers for Athens. If Alexander the Great turns up with the army of Asia at his back, uh, I think that would have been...
0: But I think you hit a really striking point there, Dan, and that's the fear factor that Alexander has at this time. So many people do not revolt from Alexander because of the reputation he's had. He's killed so many people over the course of his campaigns, cities that have tried to resist, people who have mocked him. He's been merciful at times, but especially during the later years of his campaigns, he becomes more and more genocidal. And he does get that fearful reputation. And I think it's a testament that when Alexander dies and people hear that he has died, that this fearsome leader is no more, that they decide to revolt. They'd been hanging on. They'd not decided to revolt during his lifetime because of that fear factor that Alexander possessed.
1: Yes, well, let's kill him off because he dies in Babylon at age 32. He has a strange lingering death. Physic- you've written and recorded so beautifully about the death of Alexander the Great, the sort of fights over his deathbed, the extremely large fights the minute he dies, the wars that sestates you've written books about. I mean, this is your thing. So just briefly, why does it all just completely fall apart? Well, does it completely fall apart when he dies? What does the empire look like after Alexander?
0: Well, they try to act as if Alexander was still alive, weirdly. They mint his coinage still and they impose a regency. And I think they only have to do it because of necessity, but also I think because there's a desire amongst many of these generals to wish that he hadn't died and Stan died so suddenly. Alexander has no clear heir when he dies. He has one son who's alive, but he's illegitimate and he's hundreds of miles west at Pergamum. He has one legitimate son, but he's not yet born and they don't know it's going to be a son. Roxanne, the Sogdian noblewoman he marries to stop that revolt in the northeast. She's either six or eight months pregnant at that time. And what you also have is that you have all of these people who outlive Alexander, these key generals who'd served with him Perdiccas, Ptolemy, Leonatus, Lysimachus, all incredibly confident and arrogant figures. They want to have a role in what this new empire looks like. And so, what you see under the guise of a regency whilst they wait for the heir of Alexander, for this young son to come of age, but also his older brother, a man called Aridaeus, who Alexander had taken with him on campaigns because we don't know what he had, but this Aridaeus had a condition which meant that Alexander never saw him as a threat. So under the pretense of still having kings of these successors of Alexander, the real power actually lies with these former generals of Alexander who take control of various parts of his empire. And so you get Perdiccas, who is the regent. So in all but name, Perdiccas is the new king. But of course, in name, it's Alexander's elder brother, Aridaeus, and the little boy, Alexander's son, who is also called Alexander and is born a few months later. But in reality, Perdiccas is the main man in charge. But even that doesn't last long because Perdiccas He tries for the kingship, many of the other generals try for the kingship too. And so after they have to deal with a number of revolts that break up immediately after Alexander's death, roughly three years later, you have the outbreak of the first great war between these former generals of Alexander the Great, which will culminate in Perdiccas' death on the River Nile and also the deaths of several other notable figures, such as another of Alexander's chief subordinates, a man called Craterus. So basically, within three years of Alexander's death, you have the first great civil war being fought over his empire. And what you will have is intermittent civil war between these former subordinates of Alexander that will endure on and off for the next 40 years until you have the emergence of more solid kingdoms. You have the Ptolemaic kingdom, the Ptolemaic empire centered in Egypt. The famous Cleopatra from Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, Cleopatra and Mark Antony, she was a Ptolemy. You have the Seleucids, who are largely in the Near East and in Turkey, and you have the Antigonids, who are centered in Macedon. And it's those more stable kingdoms that emerge from these decades of crisis that will ultimately come into conflicts with the new great power that emerges following Alexander's death. Which Dan, I think you know which power I'm talking about. A lot of people have been thinking about it weekly, as I've heard, as I've yeah, learned perhaps recently, perhaps even
1: daily, perhaps even daily, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the Roman Empire. Okay, so thank you very much, Tristan. I mean, that was great. People can go to your podcast, The Ancients, if you want more content, brilliant content like that, all about the ancient world, uh, about Alexander and much else besides. Tell everyone about your book, Tristan, that you wrote.
0: Oh, my book. That was a passion project, and it was a deep dive into what happens after Alexander the Great's death. That is my main area. I find Alexander fascinating, and when you do that period, you no doubt you have to learn more about Alexander himself. But this tries to explain why his empire starts to really crumble so quickly, the first three years following his death. And it's called Alexander's Successes at War, The Perdiccas Years. There is a sequel, but that is still... mm, quite a way away i'm i'm a bit preoccupied i must admit at the moment but one day i will get the sequel done of eumenes and antigonus and the rest
1: that's very exciting tristan hughes brilliant historian author broadcaster host of the ancients podcast thank you for coming on and telling me all about alexander thank you dan